Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We're talking about the Dutch Revolt, and if you haven't listened to previous episodes on it, you might want to go do that now. To catch us up, Don John of Austria just died, and his nephew, Alexander Farnese, was named regent. The Dutch were about to gain some of their biggest victories and make some decisions that would echo for centuries, but also suffer the biggest loss imaginable. This is the Dutch Revolt Part 5, Alexander Farnese and the End of William, Beginning of a Republic. And this is The Almost Forgotten. Fifteen seventy eight was a mixed year for the Dutch and William of Orange. The Battle of Jean Blot was a crushing defeat, which really would spell the end of the Union of Brussels. The rebels were able to retake territory lost there, though, thanks to their victory at the Battle of Ridgmanim. But more importantly to the rebel cause, May saw the alteration when Amsterdam had a bloodless revolt and kicked out the Spanish Allied leadership, bringing over the biggest city in Holland to the Dutch side. Also massively consequential, Don John of Austria died and appointed his nephew, Alexander Farnese, as regent, at least until Philip weighed in on the choice. Alexander Farnese was the son of Margaret of Parma, the illegitimate daughter of King Charles V of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. His ties to the Low Countries were solid, at least to Spanish eyes. William of Orange Nassau would like me to point out here that Charles, like his son Philip II, was Duke of Brabant, Count of Flanders, Holland, Haino, Lord of a dozen other places in the Low Countries, but was not King of the Netherlands, because there was no such thing. Alexander's father was one of Charles's military commanders, Ottavio Farnese, the Duke of Parma, a region in northern Italy under Habsburg dominion. Alexander's great-grandfather was Pope Paul III, and he blessed the child as an infant and decreed he would be a great soldier. Alexander participated in the Battle of Lepanto under his uncle Don John and boarded a Turkish treasure ship wielding a massive two-handed sword, cutting the defenders to pieces and capturing the vessel. His bravery was admired, but he was also admonished for being a little too reckless. By the time he made it to the Netherlands, recklessness had been replaced with a more calculated fearlessness His actions at Jean Blot are what made it a complete disaster for the rebels. He had matured into less of a scheming conqueror than his uncle Don John. He was a poised commander, there to do a job. Alexander's presence, as well as his competence, allowed him to take over for John without a power vacuum on the Spanish side. This, in turn, kept the provinces from recoalescing around the Union of Brussels, which had been torn apart by the Spanish victories in the south. Many of the southern Catholic noblemen, known as the Malcontents, were wary of joining permanently with William. Farnese offered a fresh start. And, with the Reformation now springing up more fervently in the southern Netherlands, some of the Catholic leaders were dissatisfied. Maybe that's why they called them the Malcontents. Radical Calvinists were also guilty, at times, of persecution of Catholics in some cities. William had to negotiate a religious peace at the end of 1578 in Ghent, which, among other things, 
gave the Catholics back some of their churches which had been confiscated. Alexander, meanwhile, spent the year trying to win back the Netherlands, not with force, but with bribery. Many of the nobles were interested in nothing more than money and station, and perhaps an end to the fighting, and were induced to come back into the Spanish fold with promises of all three. Civil unrest in the southern Low Countries, Duke Francis marching through it, and fear of a backlash against Catholics finally came to a head. In early 1579, the Walloon provinces in southern Netherlands, Catholic, French-speaking, and less inclined to the revolution, signed a treaty with each other. Artois, Haino, and a few other territories, but not Flanders or Brabant, agreed to allow Alexander as their governor. This, known as the Union of Arras, gave a secure southern base for Alexander to try to re-establish control over all of the Netherlands. The rest of the Netherlands tried to convince the leaders down there to change their minds, but couldn't do it. William spent much of the end of 1578 creating a response to this defection from his defection. He worked with leaders from the Northeast to create a new union as the previous one was being split apart. He let them take the lead in creating it, and his brother John, stadtholder of Gelderland, did much of the legwork. On January 23, 1579, a new union was agreed in Utrecht. The Union of Utrecht stated the provinces of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, and Groningen would join up an act in the manner of a single province. Each would keep most of their own laws and customs, but they would be together in mutual defense, no war or peace declared without full consent of the others. Majority votes for other laws would be enforced, a single currency was to be made, and religious freedom was to be allowed. It was the basis, the real foundation point, of the eventual Dutch Republic. But it was not a declaration of independence. They still recognized Spain as their overlord. They just didn't recognize any real power in the hands of Spain anymore. John Lothrop Motley wrote, Quote, the Union of Utrecht was the foundation stone of the Netherland Republic, but the framers of the Confederacy did not intend the establishment of a republic or of an independent commonwealth of any kind. They had not forsworn the Spanish monarch. It was not yet their intention to forswear him. The simple act of union was not regarded as the constitution of a commonwealth. Its object was a single one, defense against a foreign oppressor, unquote. Throughout the year, other cities and provinces signed up, including most of Gelderland and Friesland, much of Brabant and Flanders, and pretty much everything important outside of the Union of Arras and Luxembourg. The Union, now formed, would be the bulwark against the Spanish aggression, the reduction of the liberties, and the Inquisition. At least that's what it was intended to do. The Spanish had other ideas. Alexander of Parma, in early March, took his forces in the direction of Antwerp, where William and Matthias were at the time. A non-trivial skirmish occurred, but Alexander withdrew. But it was a move made to distract the States General, while he actually went after Maastricht. This city sat on both sides of the Meuse River, and was a key entry point into the Low Countries from Germany. 20,000 troops showed up to take the city from no more than 2,000 defenders. Alexander entrenched his forces all around the city and began mining the walls. Fierce fighting occurred in the tunnels beneath, as the defenders poured boiling water in or lit fires to remove the oxygen. 
As the siege wore on, Alexander set up a ring of forts around the city. William was able to send a relief army, but it arrived to find the attackers so well fortified, while still outnumbering them, they knew they could not help. Finally, the wall was breached when a small hole in it was discovered late one night by a Spanish soldier who was able to quietly make it large enough to crawl through. The city was taken, but Alexander was ill, laying sick in his bed, so the soldiers started to kill the inhabitants. Three days of rape, murder, and pillage in Maastricht led to a massacre that may have even been worse than that of Antwerp, although exaggerations after the fact makes it hard to really know. Throughout 1579, attempts were made to keep the unity of the Netherlands. Representatives of both sides met in Germany and spent months trying to come to some sort of agreement. But the states in the north were obstinate on religious freedom, honoring the pacification of Ghent and the perpetual edict, and restoration of lands that had been taken from individuals. The southern provinces, in the meantime, used the meeting to sign a treaty with Spain, This built upon the Union of Arras. The split was made more permanent, and the eventual divide between the Netherlands and Belgium was becoming entrenched, if not exactly finally delineated. In 1580, the Catholic Count of Renneburg, a stadtholder of Groningen and Friesland in the north, a close ally of William, and the son of William's old pal, the Count Hoogstraden, decided he had seen Calvinism gain too much ground against Catholicism or he just wanted some cash. Either way, for the price of 10,000 crowns, he promised to turn his lands over to the Spanish. The plot, though, was discovered, and William quickly moved forces towards the province. Pressured to make a move before he may have wanted to, Renneberg took over the city of Groningen and secured it. But the mostly Protestant Groningen province, as well as the nearby province of Friesland, would not join their stadtholder. Groningen was the most important city in the region. That's why it gave the name to the province, too. Its loss was damaging to the rebel cause, but the retention of the provinces was a good sign. The plot also made the rebels even more distrustful of appointing any more Catholics to such positions of power. Also in 1580, at least some of the states general reached out to Duke Francis of Anjou, who had recently gone back to France to ask him to act as their regent. To Archduke Matthias, they explained that they were desperate to defeat the Spanish, and while they truly appreciated him, the Holy Roman Empire had refused to give any help in the form of money or of soldiers. There would be nothing to rule without help, and Francis gave them a chance. In September, the rebels agreed upon terms with Francis to come in as their sovereign. The real power would reside in the States, of course, The States General had still not yet really contemplated, it seems, that they didn't actually need a sovereign. Holland and Zeeland, meanwhile, would not agree to Francis's placement, and eventually convince William to take supreme executive authority there. Fear of changing one Catholic overlord for another, and continued religious persecution, drove their position. Still not talking about a republic, though, William would be stadtholder for someone else. That year, Margaret of Parma returned to the Netherlands. King Philip thought it was possible that the woman who was governor, like five governors ago, was maybe hated less than the four after her. But while she had at times tried to reduce the Inquisition a bit and allow some autonomy for the states, she was still pretty well hated in the provinces. 
Alexander Farnes, of course, was livid that the king sent his mommy to help out. Quickly realizing the mistake, she begged Philip for permission to retire, which was granted, although he asked her to stay for a bit, just in case. She left for good for Italy in 1583. By 1581, the warfare had died down quite a bit, mostly because neither side had the funds to raise forces to attack each other, and while there were skirmishes, the battles weren't major turning points. But, on July 26, 1581, a turning point of a more political style occurred when the States General signed the Act of Abjuration at The Hague. This document, signed two and a half years after the Union of Utrecht, was the Dutch Declaration of Independence. In it, they accused Philip of abandoning them, and like a more famous Declaration of Independence made almost 200 years later, it started with a list of grievances against the king as justification for the move. The Dutch version wasn't quite a full-on Age of Enlightenment document, though, still mentioning the divine right of kings as they got rid of theirs. It's worth remembering, though, that this whole event was about the right to practice the Reform religion and not to be burned at the stake, as well as honoring ancient privileges and constitutional rights in a monarchy. They were mad about the auto-defacing without representation. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but it at least appears that Thomas Jefferson may have taken inspiration and wording from the act of abjuration when he wrote the American Declaration of Independence. I say a lot of people don't know this because I actually went to Monticello, Jefferson's home, in January. He was indisposed, but I asked about every tour guide I can find. And these are the Jeffersonian scholar type of tour guides, not the I'm just here because it's a job kind of tour guides. And none of them had any idea what I was talking about. Dutch War of Independence? What's that? But certainly, today there is at least a bit of recognition that the Declaration of Independence had some origins in the act of abjuration, called the Plakat van Verlatenge in Dutch. Stephen E. Lucas wrote about this in his 1994 article aptly titled Plakat van Verlatenge, a neglected model for the American Declaration of Independence. Scholars do agree that Jefferson and his colleagues didn't reveal their specific inspiration for the document, and they also agree that he was highly influenced by John Locke, as well as English legal precedent, including what Lucas calls the Apologia, public documents sanctioning the removal of English kings, which were issued each of the six times English kings were deposed since the Norman Conquest. The latest one was James II in 1689, and this Declaration of Rights, as it is called, put William III, Prince of Orange, onto the throne along with his wife Mary. Lucas states, though, that none of these were doing what the Americans were doing, rebelling against a government, not just replacing a king. He writes, quote, Written to persuade readers that a long-suffering people were justified in shaking off colonial domination and establishing themselves as a sovereign people, the placat presents a striking archetype for the document issued two centuries later by the Continental Congress to justify America's separation from Great Britain. Indeed, the structure and the argument of the two state papers is almost identical, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, Although the placat has been overlooked by virtually all previous students of the Declaration, the similarities between it and its American counterpart are so striking that we must give serious consideration to the possibility 
that Jefferson and the Committee of Five considered it as a paradigm for the argumentative structure of the document they were charged with creating, unquote. There isn't definitive historical agreement that Jefferson used the acts of abjuration. We do know that Madison looked to the Dutch Republic when he authored the U.S. Constitution to avoid the problems with the then-foundering 200-year-old United Netherlands. But that's a different story. So, did Jefferson reference the document? Look, I couldn't find much definitively saying he did, but I just find it hard to believe he didn't. I took the suggestion of one of those tour guides at Monticello, who said I should look at Jefferson's book catalog. Jefferson was kind enough to catalog all the books he sold to the Library of Congress in order to pay off his debts. Nestled in between the books on the rulers of Renaissance Bologna and the books on the history of Switzerland were ten books on the history of the United Provinces of the Dutch Republic, including a biography of William the Silent. And listen to this. In the American version, after the more famous when in the course of human events bit and the we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal part, there is a pretty important part that gets to the heart of the matter. Quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, unquote. Later in the same stanza, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, unquote. All good stuff, right? Foundational beliefs of a great republic. Okay, now this is the introduction to the acts of abjuration. Quote, As it is apparent to all that a prince is constituted by God to be ruler of a people, to defend them from oppression and violence as the shepherd his sheep, and whereas God did not create the people slaves to their prince, to obey his commands whether right or wrong, but rather the prince for the sake of the subjects, without which he could be no prince, to govern them according to equity, to love and support them as a father his children or a shepherd his flock, and even at the hazard of life to defend and preserve them. And when he does not behave thus, but on the contrary oppresses them, seeking opportunities to infringe their ancient customs and privileges, exacting from them slavish compliance, then he is no longer a prince but a tyrant and the subjects are to consider him in no other view. And particularly, when he has done this deliberately, unauthorized by the states, they may not only disallow his authority, but legally proceed to the choice of another prince for their defense. This is the only method left for subjects whose humble petitions and remonstrances could never soften their prince or dissuade him from his tyrannical proceedings. And this is what the law of nature dictates for the defense of liberty, which we ought to transmit to posterity, even at the hazard of our lives. And this we have seen done frequently in several countries upon the like occasion, whereof there are notorious instances and more justifiable in our land, which has always been governed according to their ancient privileges, which are expressed in the oath taken by the prince at his admission to the government. For most of the provinces receive their prince upon certain conditions which he swears to maintain, which, if the prince violates, he is no longer sovereign, unquote. As Lucas said, the similarities are pretty striking. The acts of abjuration, a document abjuring or repudiating Philip II, went on to, 
like the American Declaration of Independence, discuss all the ways the sovereign was failing in his duties. Jefferson had a whole bunch of paragraphs about how bad a job King George III is doing. He has refused to assent to laws. He has obstructed the administration of justice and includes he has abdicated government here. After its lofty, dry, and lengthy intro, the acts then state, all these considerations give us more than sufficient reason to renounce the king of Spain and to seek some other powerful and more gracious prince to take us under his protection. And, more especially, as these countries have been for these 20 years abandoned to disturbance and oppression by their king, during which time the inhabitants were not treated as subjects, but enemies, enslaved forcibly by their own governors. Unquote. Then there's like five or six more paragraphs that detail how they're really, really not going to be his subjects anymore. Like they won't be swearing oaths to him, and he won't even be on their coins. The whole thing was an important step beyond the earlier unions because it stated that their oaths of allegiance to Philip were null and void thanks to his behavior. And while it did allow for them to rule themselves, they still weren't quite there yet. At this point, they still assumed the Duke of Anjou was to be their nominal chief, at least everywhere but in Holland and Zealand, and they mentioned him by name. There was still great fear in those provinces, and in other provinces, that bringing in Anjou would just introduce a similar enemy of the reformist churches, only one that was much closer than Spain. William pleaded with the delegates from Holland and Zealand to accept Anjou, but they remained loyal only to the Prince of Orange. The fact was, though, Francis would not have any real power. The power would reside with the States General. In February of 1582, Francis arrived in the Netherlands with 5,000 French knights in tow, in addition to 12,000 foot soldiers. He had been in England, trying to finalize a marriage with Queen Elizabeth. Her own writings suggest that she was charmed by him and personally interested, but feared that if something happened to her, the island would become a French protectorate. The marriage didn't happen, and he was greeted upon landing in Zealand by William of Orange. He was soon installed as the new Duke of Brabant, the most important royal position in the Netherlands, and the ceremony at Antwerp was massive. English and French nobles were there. The ceremony was probably like nothing that had been seen in the provinces since Charles V's abdication, but it was in some ways a farce. Motley wrote, quote, The Duke had subscribed to 27 articles, which made as stringent and sensible a constitutional compact as could be desired by any Netherland patriot. These articles, taken in connection with the ancient charters which they expressly upheld, left the new sovereign no vestige of arbitrary power. He was merely the hereditary president of a representative republic, unquote. Mali is using hindsight here. While they knew they were giving Francis limited power, they didn't seem to fully realize that they were actually creating a republic. But his limitations were real. He had to assemble the states general by law, and could not give non-Netherlanders high office. A month later, William, after dining with some noblemen, left the room and found a petitioner waiting for him. The young man offered him a piece of paper, and then suddenly drew a pistol and shot William in the head. The ball went in his neck below his ear, and exited through the front of his mouth. The pistol was so close that he was burned by the shot as well. The leader of the Dutch Revolution was helped to his bed and he was bandaged, miraculously still alive. The shot didn't kill him, and the fire from it seemed to have cauterized the wound immediately, 
he likely would have bled out otherwise. For almost three weeks, William held on. There were some scares along the way, including when the wound opened up and attendants had to stand over him and apply constant pressure to it for hours. He survived, though, and after weeks of convalescence, was able to return to work. Unfortunately, his wife Charlotte, exhausted from caring for him during the ordeal, did not survive. She became ill and died of a fever just a few days after William was considered out of the woods himself. It was attributed to the stress and anxiety of the events. It was probably William's only marriage that was for love rather than political connections, and amidst all the frenzy, it surely must have affected him greatly. As this was going on, Alexander of Parma was beginning to build up forces in the southern Netherlands. He laid siege to the once important city of Udenarde, birthplace of Margaret of Parma. Francis tried to bring a force to relieve the siege, but Alexander was able to take the city before he arrived. Francis was able to relieve another city in Gelderland. Francis traveled to Ghent, where Alexander tried to attack him, but was forced to retreat. By the end of 1582, although Alexander had taken back quite a few cities, the presence of Francis and the French troops seemed to have given the rebels the upper hand, or at minimum a balance, at least in terms of maintaining their territory. But things would not remain that way for long. Francis, you see, was never considered a brilliant or scrupulous man. Motley makes up a million excuses why William seems to be so trusting of him, none of them totally convincing. William either just read him wrong, or thought the Dutch were so in need of outside forces and money that they had no other choice. As the armies retired for the winter, Francis spent the end of 1582 with his closest French nobleman friends, who convinced him that he shouldn't be subordinate to those stinking Calvinist reformist Netherlanders. The Duke of Anjou then decided his lack of governmental powers was an insult. He put together a plot for his French followers to simultaneously take possession of major cities in Flanders, including Dunkirk, Bruges, and Ghent, as he marched into Antwerp and took that himself. On January 15, 1583, the plan was set into motion. French captains were able to seize Dunkirk and some other towns where they were already garrisoned, kicking out any native defenders. Bruges was next on the list, but the whole thing wasn't quite simultaneous enough. The citizens by then had word of the plot and were able to close the gates and set up a defense. The French didn't have a big enough force to take that now well-defended town, so they left. Antwerp also had some inkling of something being up by the time Francis arrived. He entered the city, where William was residing at the time, and was asked, Hey, qu'est-ce que c'est ça? The Duke of Anjou was aghast, and complained that their suspicions about his intentions were très insulting. William, after chatting with his figurehead, went back to his house. Francis's secretary followed him and was all, Hey, why don't you accompany the Duke out to his camp for more chit-chat? William declined. But right after, Francis left the city and rode out to his camp. He then told his men that nobody would suspect a thing, and it was time to re-enter the city and take it by force. He and 300 knights crashed through the barely guarded gate, stabbing a guard in a scene that was probably similar to Sir Lancelot attacking before the wedding in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The rest of the troops rushed in after the gate was opened to them, 
With no resistance mustered inside the city, the French decided they really ought to start looting before anyone told them not to. This gave the burghers and the city guards the time they needed to rally. Everyone in the city, rich and poor, Protestant and Catholic, came charging out to the market exchange with whatever they could grab. A baker came rushing out with one of those large wooden bread spatulas, but no clothes because ovens were hot, I guess, and knocked a French cavalry officer off his horse and killed him. Women and children joined in, throwing anything they could at the attackers. The entire group was surrounded and was quickly set upon by the mass of the city. They tried to flee, but most didn't make it. An hour after Francis signaled the attack, it was all over. 250 French noblemen were killed. More than a thousand attackers in total died there. Several French nobles, who were not told of this underhanded plot because Francis knew they'd oppose, had remained in camp and upbraided Francis for his dishonorable and treasonous behavior. Francis attempted, after fleeing, to save face. He blamed the Netherlands for insulting him and pushing him to action. He tried to call it some sort of accident, nothing but a big misunderstanding. There were even some attempts at a negotiation for his return. William, for some reason, still saw some possibility of keeping him on in a ceremonial role with no French troops to make sure France stayed an ally. But by the summer, Francis, the Duke of Anjou, had left the Netherlands. He died just a year later, officially of malaria, leaving that French Huguenot, Henry of Navarre, as the next in line for the French throne. The naked baker, by the way, was awarded a pension by the city for his actions. William and the Dutch would have to find a new regent. But first, that year, William remarried again, this time another political match. He married Louise de Coligny, daughter of Gaspard de Coligny, that leading French Huguenot noble who was killed in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. This was meant to keep William's family in close alliance with French nobility, despite the actions of the Duke of Anjou. As for the cities that Anjou had taken, being far to the south and near the Union of Arras, they were retaken by locals, but by Catholics who were supporters of Spain. The north, without a fake leader, saw the states convene in Middleburg in August and offered the official leadership to William. He once again declined, although this time he delayed, insisting that more cities needed to weigh in and approve this. The Council of Brabant offered him the title of Duke of Brabant, the traditional title of the leader of the Netherlands. It was a title held by Charles V and Philip II, and now recently vacated by Francis of Anjou. But he declined that as well. It seems his driving motivation was to keep his enemies from using his titles as a rallying point, as proof that he was in it for individual power. Catholic leaders in the large and important city of Ghent soon began negotiating with Alexander of Parma, but the citizens themselves protested and defection was prevented. It was clear, though, that Catholic nobles were interested in southern Flanders, aligning more with the Union of Arras than Utrecht. William left Brabant for Holland, in the city of Delft in South Holland, where it was safer. In January of 1584, William and Louise had a son, Frederick Henry. He, like his older brother Maurice, would play a role in the 80-year War of Independence. Also that year, the cities in the southwest portion of the Netherlands began to fall to Alexander and his forces without too much of a fight. Ypres and Bruges surrendered to the Spanish, although not in major battles. 
As they were being beaten back from this important historical and commercial region, the rebel forces were starting to worry that they wouldn't be able to hold together. With pressure to take a more formal role as leader, and pressure from Farnese taking cities, William, after years of saying no, decided to finally accept the role of Count of Holland. But by this point, the leaders of Holland were starting to realize maybe they didn't need a royal leader. Holland was now the driving force behind the rebellion. Their burghers had provided most of the money. They respected William, but unlike the rest of the rebel Dutch lands, didn't necessarily think they needed him in order to make it. The concept of a republic had started to coalesce in the minds of the leaders of Holland. They had tried to make a republic in all but name. Maybe it was time to make that official. They certainly wouldn't cast their hero William aside, but was it time to give him a role other than sort of an aristocratic sovereign? As this was all being debated, unfortunately, the answer was thrust upon them. Francis Guillaume, a French Huguenot who had seen his parents killed in religious attacks, had made his way to Delft to help William work with his French allies. He soon came into the prince's confidence and was able to become acquainted with the house and William's routine. Guillaume, though, wasn't really a French Huguenot. He was actually Balthazar Gerard, a Burgundian Catholic who considered William a traitor to Philip and to the one true religion. On the 10th of July, 1584, William got up after a meal to head towards his quarters. In the vestibule by the stairway to go up, Gerard jumped out of the shadows and fired three pistol shots into Orange. Within a few minutes, William of the House of Nassau, Prince of Orange, Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, and Friesland, Baron and Count of a half a dozen smaller places, was dead at age 51. He was buried in Delft a few days later. Motley writes, quote, At 15, he was the confidential counselor, as at 21, he became the general-in-chief to the most politic, as well as the most warlike, potentate of his age. The supremacy of his political genius was entirely beyond question. He was the first statesman of his age. The quickness of his perception was only equaled by the caution which enabled him to mature the results of his observations. His intellectual faculties were various and of the highest order, unquote. He was no military slouch either. Although he wasn't the foremost general of his day, he was a careful and exacting commander. Motley again, quote, It is certain that the Emperor Charles had an exalted opinion of his capacity for the field. His fortification of Philipville and Charlemont, in the face of the enemy, his passage of the Meuse in Alva's sight. His unfortunate but well-ordered campaign against that general. His sublime plan of relief, projected and successfully directed at last from his sickbed for the besieged city of Leiden, will always remain monuments of his practical military skill, unquote. But all that skill was really just the foundation of his ability to command the loyalty of the provinces of the Netherlands, at least the northern ones and his ability to command their loyalty was the foundation of the Dutch Republic. After his death, the provinces in the Union of Utrecht were thrown into turmoil. Ghent, which William had personally saved several times, fell to Alexander Farnese within a few months. Philip's governor-general was proving to be an able commander, good on the field of battle, but also understanding of the political dynamics that could bring the Walloon and southern Flemish Catholic noblemen over to his cause. 
The towns and regions in the south were being swallowed up. Spain was resurgent in the low countries, and the rebellion had lost its leader. It wouldn't be a stretch to think that the whole of the Netherlands would soon be swallowed up outside of Holland and Zealand. Then the Spanish would just have to wait them out, or, with the absence of William, try to buy off the leaders there. But the country that had fought for over five centuries to have some form of local independence wasn't going to be content with laying down for the Spanish. The Spanish would take advantage of the loss of William and begin to retake a great deal of territory. But the States General, driven by Holland, had an answer. Political leadership would survive under the States General, led by statesman Johann van Oldenbarnevelt, and military leadership would thrive under William's son, Maurice. The Spanish would continue to make gains, but the Netherlands would fight back next time. But before I go, I just want to point out that, yeah, it may seem like spending all this time on the Dutch Revolt with the focus on one man might seem a bit much. And while, yes, there were so many others who played a big part in the revolution, and some who will continue to play a role as it stretches out to be 80 years in length, William's role and influence was above and beyond everyone else. He is truly the national hero of the Netherlands. You want proof? How about the song Wilhelmus van Nassau, also known as Het Wilhelmus, or The William? It is a song told from William's point of view about how he honored the king of Spain, fears only God, and fights only because he sees the way the Spanish are destroying the land and the people. The song dates to before the capture of Brilla by the sea beggars and was popular during William's lifetime. In 1626, the current melody was written down. Today, it is the national anthem of the Netherlands and is thought by many to be the oldest current national anthem in the world. It has 15 stanzas, but when, for example, the Dutch win a speed skating gold at the Olympics and the song is to be played, it's usually just the first and sometimes the sixth stanza that are played. The first stanza is translated something like, William of Nassau am I, of a German blood, faithful to the fatherland, I remain until death. A prince of orange am I, very fearless, the king of Spain I have always honored. And the sixth stanza, my shield and my reliance are you, O Lord my God. It is you on who I want to rely, to never leave me, that I may remain brave, your servant for always, and defeat the tyranny which pierces my heart. And with that, Instead of the usual outro, I'll let the Wilhelmus play us out. Until next time, thanks for listening.